We're going to continue this morning in the uh, Gospel of John. Uh, We'll be in John chapter 4 looking at uh, the woman at the well, part 3, I believe is what we're on now. We'll begin in verse uh, 16 if you would like to read along. John 4, verses 16 to 26. Let us give respect to God's Word now together. John writes, Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Most gracious heavenly fathers, we open your word this morning. We ask that you would use it. You would cut us to the core that we might see your glory. That we might love you more as we understand you more. That we might fall into deeper faith and obedience. We might use your word to change our hearts and to renew our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue this morning through the Gospel of John, and we're going to be looking. This is the third time we've gone back to the woman at the well, and, and next week Harry will finish us with part four. And if you remember last week, it was this idea that, that, that this living water has been offered, and then she doesn't accept it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I spent time listening to Harry Sermon. I wasn't here with you all last week. I was down in Hopewell at, at one of our sister churches preaching uh, at West Hopewell as they are without a pastor. And um, it's always sad to not be with you, but it's, you know, sometimes really nice to go back to my roots as, I'm, you know, I'm from the Tri-Cities, and my great-aunt Tina used to worship at West Hopewell back when Tim Keller was their pastor, and I always like to remind them of that and then remind them I'm not as good as he is so they can calm down. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I was there and then I spent this week, it uh, been a busy week in, in, in youth ministry and just in life. And Meredith and the girls went up to visit her parents and grandparents this weekend. And I was left, it was the first uh, Saturday of, of open gun season for deer hunting in, 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 in our area. So if you're not a hunter, I'm sorry. Uh, if you, you know, have anything against it, I'm happy to talk to you about that. But... Um, I, I, I grew up with it, my dad uh, and I still enjoy, and so uh, Saturday morning I got up at an hour that no one should get up at and drove down to pick my dad up and drove out to, to Church Road, Virginia out in Dinwiddie County to go hunting. And uh, it's always great, take my dad to something he loves to do, and uh, it was cold and it was windy and it didn't take long for me to wish we hadn't done this. And uh, I, I set my dad up at the top of a hill and left him and I walked down the hill into this bottom and... Um, that, you know, the, the dogs hit the ground and, they, and, and it was all over us all morning. And about an hour and a half, two hours in, I got this phone call 
from my dad. If you don't know, my dad has Parkinson's and, and needs help doing things now. And he called and said, I need to go to the bathroom. And I was like, okay, uh, is this, you know, like an emergency or, you know, can we, can we drive back to the hunt club? And he's like, we can make it back. So I walk up the hill and get my dad back in the truck and we drive off and, and then, um, we drive back in after, after, after getting him situated and getting him dressed again. And on the way back in, the, the radio blows up and this, this young man that we call Doughboy is, is screaming about this deer that he's just seen. And that he shot it and there's blood and he needs a dog to track it. And I mean, just the excitement of the first day of hunting season. And, and I'm like, where, where is it at? You know, where, maybe it, he hasn't killed it. It's still running. Maybe we're about to see it. And then he says, you know, I, I'm at the bottom of the center road in the mud hole. And I'm going, okay. So... Um, that was my stand before I took my dad off to the restroom. <laughs> and uh, my, my dad's oblivious. He hasn't picked up on that yet. And we get down the road, and, the, and, and this guy's truck's parked in the middle of, of a one-lane road between some trees. And my dad's yelling, at, he needs to move his truck. We can't get by. And I'm like, Dad, he's in the woods looking for the, you know, the deer that he shot that I maybe would have shot. Um, <laughs> and it's like, like it's a common theme for my dad that he just, you know, he, he doesn't pick up on things quite as quick any longer. Last year, on the last day we went, kind of similar situation. I, I parked the truck and, and left him with the truck and set the chair up for him. And I walked down and around the corner and we were told that we were on a stand where, where the deer, it was, a, it was a hot stand and, and everybody was mad that we got it, but it was the only one that was easily accessible. And so they're kind to my father and to me and we're sitting there and sure enough, the dogs are running again and it, I, I hear them and I'm like, oh man, it's, it's coming right at us. It's going to jump right here where they told us it's going to. And, and then I saw it often in the woods and it didn't come across the road where they said it was going to, but, but right as it jumped the creek that the, the drainage pipe was like the light from heaven shone down on it, and Bambi's father was lit up for all of his glory. And it was the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life, and I'm going, he's running right at Dad. This is Dad's chance, probably the last chance he's going to have to kill a deer. And there's no, there's no gunshot. And I wait a little while, and I walk down, and it's like, Dad, did you, did you see the deer? And he's like, what deer? And I was like, Dad, he, he, he had to run right by here. I mean, the dogs crossed the, the, the road just, just up from, from you, right? And he's like, yeah, they crossed around the corner there. I was like, you didn't see the deer? And he's like, no, the dogs were right here, though. I mean, he's like pointing just inside the wood line. Like, the, the dogs were right there. It's like, were they just like playing or were they running fast? And, and he's oblivious to the fact that like if the dogs came, you know, running by, I mean, they were burning the deer up when I saw it. And, and, and he's oblivious to the fact that this deer has run by him and that, that he's missed his chance. And, and he was distracted, I think, by the back of his eyelids. And it, it, it's, it's one of those things that that happens. You know, you get cozy on, on a cold day up against a tree or, and, and, and you fall asleep. But, I mean, he's just oblivious to it. And, 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 and you know, those stories, they're, they're comical in some ways because they're, they're sad that we didn't get a chance to, to bring dinner home um, in that way. We stopped at, at a Publix close to my parents' house and picked up a chicken. <laughs> but we, we missed out on something because we, we just we didn't see it coming. And that's kind of the story here of this woman at the well. Jesus has said to her, I, I, I want to give you living water that's going to spring up to, to life eternal. And she says, give me this water. And if you're a slow reader in verse 15, and, and she says, you know, I want this water. You're thinking, hallelujah, she gets it. She wants the water. And then you read the next few words, and she says, so I don't have to come back to the well anymore. And you go, she doesn't get it. She's oblivious to what this water is. She's oblivious to how, how, to, how to even possess this water and, and, and get this water. And so she, she doesn't understand what, what Jesus is saying. And that's where we're at this morning. We're, we're at this place where she's oblivious to what this water is. She's oblivious even to her need for the water that he's talking about. And as we'll see in the passage, she's distracted a little bit by some things going on between her Samaritan heritage and, and Jesus' Jewish heritage. 
And so Jesus, in these next few verses that we're going to look at, is really taking time to, to not change the subject like it might seem, but to dig deeper. Because he, he wants her uh, to see the, these truths that are here. First, it's the truth about, about her and her need, which is really a truth about us and our need. Verses 16 and 19. Second, that, that you, I mean, you can't accept the water until you know you need the water. And then second, that, that the truth about, about worship and, and true religion in 20 and 24. And then lastly, the truth about who Jesus is. Verses 25 and 26, who Jesus is. That you can't enjoy the living waters until you see the glory of Jesus. So first, the, 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 this truth about our need. I mean, right off the, the bat, Jesus dives in trying to help her see this, this living water that she needs it. That she's thirsting for it, even when she can't understand what he's talking about. He's trying to, to show her this deep need that, that she has. And, and we have this practice, right? I mean, it's built into our worship service. We've just done this. We, we sing and proclaim God's glory and praises, and then we take a time out to confess our sin, to confess our own neediness. I mean, it's built into our worship service each and every Sunday, whether you realize it or not. The, the, the rhythm of our, our service is meant to proclaim the gospel from beginning to end. And so we praise God for who he is, and then we take a time out and, and, and remember our need for a Savior. He's trying to get her to see her need for a Savior. And so he's telling her, and then he asks her this, this very easy question. Verse 16, he says, go and get your husband and come back. Go and get your husband and come back. And... Um, you know, the word that's used here is not, not one just, just we would use to talk about our spouse. Just talking about someone that you're, that you're intimate with, that you have a romantic relationship with. And so he's talking about her, her private bedroom life in some ways. It's shocking that this is where he goes. He's a, a, a man at the well. She's a woman at the well. It's just the two of them. And he dives into something that personal and that intimate. Yet he enters into it with great care, pastorally, and compassionately, but he still dives into somewhere that he knows is going gonna, gonna to hurt a little bit. And he does it because she doesn't have the water yet. And he needs her to see her need for the water. And so he goes to the place that her greatest shame is. He goes to the place that her greatest despair is. And he does this with us. He, he, he does this with us. We, when, when we don't have the water, he, he, he constantly throws in front of our faces the places where our greatest shame is. I mean, we wrestle with that. Even those of us that now have the water, right? I mean, we, we still have places in our lives, we still have things in our lives that, that we carry with us that are full of the shame and the guilt. And so Jesus goes after those because they, they need the cleansing water as well. And he does that here. He, 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 he goes after that spot. And of course, she, she thinks she's got it figured out. She's got a good answer. She's got a truthful answer. And it's going to end the conversation. She says, I have no husband. She's like, I, I know you think at my age I should be married by now, and, but, I, but it just hasn't worked out for me. I don't, I don't have a husband. And she thinks she's done a good job of deflecting this conviction she's feeling. She's done a good job of, of moving on from something she doesn't want to talk about. We're so much like her. It's, somebody begins to, to pry into our lives, and we want to give just enough of a truthful answer to get them to stop prying. We want to give them just enough so that they don't keep questioning or digging any deeper because we don't want to deal with it. And that's what she's done. I don't have a husband. Sorry, guy. Sorry, sorry, living water man. There's no husband for me to go and get. And uh, it's defensive, though. You know, she, she, she doesn't treat Jesus as if he's going after her deepest sins and her shame. 
She just thinks he's being, you know, social and asking, you know, go get your husband so that he can be a part of our conversation. It's not appropriate maybe for us to be here alone talking. So go get him so that it is. She's like, I, well, I, don't, I don't have one actually. And um, we do this, you know, we, we get caught red, red-handed and, you know, like in the movies we go, but look over there so we can run away. Or if you're like me, I, um, I grew up and, and my great-grandmother for a while was living and um, I got to an age where I was not quite old enough to be left by myself. And she had not quite gone crazy enough to be, you know, institutionalized. And my parents thought a good idea for us to babysit one another. She would stop me from doing things I shouldn't do, and I would stop her from doing things she shouldn't do. And for a while, it went well. It did. It went well for a little bit. And then on the third, the third, the third attempt of this... Uh, my parents walk back in the house, my grandmother, it's my great-grandmother, Ora, and I, and, and, and they look at me and they say, Did, so you ate all of them? And you might be thinking cookies or something like that. That, that wasn't what it was. And, and I responded, truthfully, I didn't eat them all. Because it was Grandma Ora's idea. And they were multicolored and it said fruit flavored on the front of the bottle. And it was a family-sized bottle of Tums. And she swore they were candy. They weren't. I didn't know any better. I was like six. And so we finished that bottle. And, and, and I didn't realize it, that, that like the evidence was the, you know, the caked white tum around my mouth. And just staring my parents in the face. And I was like, I didn't eat all of them. I gave you, here, here's a half truth. We do that every time, right? I mean, God confronts us with our sin and, and, and we begin to give a half truth to explain it away. So we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to engage with it. And, you know, it's comical when, when you're six and it's tons and it's not that big of a deal, you hope. But, but other things come along in life and, and we continue to try to hide our guilt and our shame. And so she says this truth. You know, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is right, you don't. You've had five. And, 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 and in fact, actually, even the man you're with now that you're living with, that you're having relations with, he isn't your husband. And I, I, how relevant for our day. Right? I mean, we, we, we live in, in a society, in a culture that, that looks at the seventh commandment and just writes it off. That thinks there's some exception now. That, that Paul's warnings throughout his letter of sexual immorality don't really count any longer. That they were for, you know, more conservative and, and stasier times. But we're, we're, we're liberated people now and they don't really matter. And so we just keep living life as if the profession of our faith doesn't matter. It doesn't have any, any, any say in those things. And it's not just those things, it's really anything. I mean, she's a religious person, we're going to find out, and it, it seems that her religious professions have had no effect on this. I mean, there are many, many Christians who continue to live while professing with their lips as if it didn't matter, and it has no effect. So Jesus said, go get your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you got five. And then she, she makes this profound statement. She makes this profound statement. I perceive that you are a prophet. Look at you, knowing things that nobody else knows. I've been caught. But just like sometimes happens when, you know, you find out somebody's a pastor or, or they're an expert in a subject matter, she thinks, well, if you're a prophet, let's, let's do prophet stuff, right? You're going to have answers. She, she, she had thought that, she didn't, that he didn't know her, that, that maybe he had, he had asked that question just out of custom and... and, and he is a prophet. 
He does know. He, he's the prophet, the great prophet, the final prophet, who knows all truth, who knows every heart, who knows every thought. Preacher doesn't know every heart, doesn't know every thought. Your spouse doesn't, though you think maybe sometimes they do. Your parents don't. Children just let you know they don't. And your kids don't know everything about you. Your best friend doesn't. But Jesus does. He, he, he knows her heart. And, and he says, go get your husband. And he doesn't continue with it and say, and never come back. He doesn't say, go to your husband and never come back. I don't want to ever see you. You, 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 you know, you're a repugnant, sinful woman. I don't want to talk to you any longer. He doesn't say, go get him and bring him back so I can yell at both of you for your sexual immorality. He says, go get your shame. Go, go get your shame. Go get your baggage and come back. And come back to me. The one who's offered you living water. We, we, we often think that, right? I mean, we, we, we see he, he wants this woman, this particular woman, in, in all of her, her sin, in all of her, her, her you know, ill repute and in, in, in her being an outcast and a down and out in, in her community. He wants her to possess this living water. And, and he invites her in her shame. And, and, and he, he does the same for us. I mean, she's a picture of us. I mean, think about if, if the whole community knew of all of your sexual sin, of all of, all of your gossip, of, of, of all of your anger and pride and lying and cheating. You'd be an outcast and a down and out. And Jesus says, come and bring that to me. Go and get it and bring it here. So you can have living water. I know you're a prophet, she says. And, and Jesus is trying to get her to see this need for water. is trying to get her to understand herself. How thirsty she is. And, and, and the word of the God does the same for us, right? I mean, Paul, in, in his introduction to his, the, the, the Romans in his letter, in the first three chapters, right, lays out his words in with what we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it starts with, with chapter 1. He, he lays out the pagans. They're sinful. They, they, they've exchanged, right, natural relations for unnatural relations. They exchanged the glory of God for false gods. And we go, yep, those pagans, they are sinful people. That's easy for us to see. And he moves on to chapter 2 and says, you, you, you Greeks and you, and you Jews and you Romans who, who are living good lives and paying your taxes and your kids are well adjusted and you're com- contributing to society, your judgment of them condemns you because in your hearts, you've broken God's law as well. And not to, to, to leave them out, in chapter 3 he goes on and says, hey, you, you faithful religious followers. Hey, 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 you who, who know God's word and, and, and you who, who follow the traditions and, and are worshiping, you know, like you think you're supposed to. You who think you have no need of a savior. You too have sin. Hey, you read the Psalms that out of the mouth continually comes deceit and unbelief out of the hearts. He says, don't you see you're part of humanity, that your soul is thirsting for, for forgiveness and, and for love and for mercy and for grace, just like they are. And Paul closes his argument and says, therefore, by the, by the holy law of God, every mouth is stopped and no one has a defense. Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners and we have a need for this living water. And Paul doesn't stop there. He then goes on and shares the glories of the gospel. We have a need. 
You can't get the refreshing power of the living water until your thirst is so great you realize it's the only thing that will quench it. Jesus is desperately trying to get her to see her need for this living water by exposing her shame and her guilt. Not just that he's trying to get her to see the truth about her need, but secondly, that he wants her to, to, to see the truth about worship and, and, and true religion. Beginning in verse 20, it, it seems that she wants to shift subjects again, right? I mean, she's just been called out. Now, now it's on the table. This guy's a prophet, and so let's, let's have the conversation about religious things now. I, I want to have spiritual conversations with the prophet, not just about my, my you know, romantic life. Remember, um, at our church down in Florida, there was a, we had a Christian school, and I would sometimes, like, you know, walk the hall and say hi to students between classes and, um, you know, go shoot basketball in the gym while they were still in school just to kind of mock them that they were in class and I wasn't. I remember walking by the Bible class uh, one day, and I guess they had just taken a big, like, semester-ending exam or something, and, and the Bible teacher, his name was Dan, yelled, hey, hey Marty, come on in, come in, you can say hi to the students. And I was like, sure, and then I got in there, and he said, so class, today we're going to have Ask Marty Questions Day, and he just sat down and left me up front going, hey... Like in shorts and like a ratty t-shirt and flip-flops and going, <laughs> how you guys doing? And, and, and that, but that's what we do, right? I mean, we hear that someone's an expert in something. We hear that, that someone's, and we begin to just pepper them with questions that we want answers to. That's what she does. She realizes like, okay, you're a prophet. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We've got some differences in, in what we believe about true worship. We've got some differences in what we believe about um, religion. And so, hey, like, give me some insights, you know, guy, guy offering living water, guy who seems to know more than he should about me. Um, get, give me some insights. She's a religious person. She's religiously knowledgeable. And it's actually that religious knowledge that's kept her from the living water. She's distracted by these questions and these conversations and these arguments of between Samaritans and Jews and where proper worship's to happen and the nature of the Messiah and, and the nature of God's word and other things. And, and we know this to be true, that, that we, we realize that there are things in our backgrounds, in our religious backgrounds at times that keep us from living water, even in the evangelical church, that, that we get so married to certain traditions or, or habits of way, ways of doing things that we end up missing the living water as we argue about those things or get angry that those things aren't what we want them to be. And we miss the living water. It's why, you know, I, I get up sometimes and, and rail and, and get so passionate and so angry and so loud when, when I'm proclaiming the good news of the gospel to us because we often miss it so regularly. Because we get caught up in politics and church stuff and worship styles and, you know, what, what we're going to hang on the wall over here or over there and we miss living water. And... That's what she's doing. She's missed living water because she's saying, let's talk about religions for a moment. I, you know, I, 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 my ancestors worshiped here, but you say we have to worship over there. Which is it? What, what's true? What's right? What's the right way to do this, prophet guy? What's the truth? What's the answer? And Jesus says, essentially, as he gets through this, he goes, all right, just be honest. Just be honest with you. He says, look, it, it, it's possible that you could be in a room full of all these different religions and none of them are the true religion because there's only one true religion. There's only one, and, and he even gets so far to say, it's like, and actually yours is not true and good. The, even in the Old Testament, in, in, in the books that you respect and honor, it's, it's clear that we're supposed to be worshiping at the Temple Mount, where the Spirit of God descended, and, and, and people were in His presence, and 
He was with his people. And that's over there at, at Mount Zion. And so he's, he's settling these things for her. But you know, you've been worshiping wrong, but he, he doesn't leave it there. Right? He, he says, but, but there's actually an hour that is coming. And it's, it's actually not just coming. It's an hour that's, that's now come. That, that true worship, those who, who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. And will no longer worship at Mount Gerasim. Will no longer worship on Mount Zion. You hear what he's saying? That there's no significance in those sacred spaces. That there's a time coming that when the, the, the time of the Spirit is upon us and, and the Spirit is indwelling God's people that they themselves become the temple and worship happens where God's people are. When they get that living water. So true worshipers won't be standing in front of the wailing wall. They'll be worshiping in spirit and in truth wherever they find themselves. What is the Spirit? It's the, it's the living water. The Holy Spirit's going to fill God's people and His presence will be in them. Those who are filled with this living water who have the Spirit will now worship in the power of the Holy Spirit. It says the, the, the days of debate are gone. And this isn't just like a little debate. You know, this isn't like us and, and you know, we think, okay, we, we, we believe in, in covenant baptism, so you know, you're a member of the church and you have a child, and so we're going to bring the child up and we're going to baptize the child and proclaim the promises of God upon them and, and seal them with the, the work of the Spirit that, that they get to participate in and, and get the benefits of being a part of the, the visible church versus you know, we're going to dunk them when they become believers. Those kind of arguments are going to be settled when the Messiah comes, as she's about to say. They will be. I don't think we're going to care at that point. In glory, I don't think we're going we're to care which way it was. This isn't one of those kinds of arguments. This is the argument of, of this is the right way to worship and your way is just another way to get to the same end. And Jesus is saying, no, there's only one way to get to the end. It's not different religions are, are headed in the same direction on different paths. No, there's only one religion headed in the right way and that's Christianity. They don't call it that yet. But that's what Jesus is, is, is proclaiming to her. He's saying there's only one religion that says things and holds things like the doctrines of grace and and substitutionary atonement. There's only one religion that looks at your need and says it's actually a substitute who's going to bear the wrath of God for you. There's only one true religion. So you can't understand living water. You can't receive it unless you understand the truth about the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness of, of worship. And the only true worship is the worship that's done in spirit and in truth. And there's only one way for that to happen. Through faith in Christ Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. Being united to him in baptism. Being raised to life with him in his resurrection. That's the only way that we get this true religion. It's the only way that we get true worship. Jesus is the only way. And it might sound narrow-minded. It might even say sound prideful. And if it was my own words, it would be. If I was up here proclaiming that somehow I was smart enough to have figured this out, it would be prideful. It'd be arrogant. Well, let's be honest. You all know me. I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I, 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 God's word is God's word. In fact, I, I know that it's not me because I wouldn't have chosen this way. I would want to have work it out on my own because I'm prideful. I like to work with my hands and do things on my own. I don't like help. And it's not just that I get help. I get somebody who did it all for me. I get a substitute. And you have to understand as you look at what sin has done in her life, right? I mean, she's condemned. 
She's under God's wrath. She's corrupt socially and morally, and she can't do anything to fix it. It's why she keeps showing up day in and day out in the middle of the day when no one else is going to be around. Because she doesn't have to deal with the guilt and the shame. Because she can't fix it. She can't undo what she's done. And she realizes that. Who or what is going to solve that problem? There's only one religion that solves that problem that says that Jesus the Messiah dies on the cross to remove the wrath of God and exhaust his wrath that we deserve. It's the only one. Look around at other world religions. None of them make claims like that. No one, none of them make claims that say someone died on your account for your salvation. And there's nothing you added to it and there's nothing you can take away from it. They're not all headed in the same direction. We have to understand the truth of the uniqueness of Christianity, of true religion. Only one religion claims to fix corruption at its root. Only one religion says that the God that you worship enters you to cleanse you and change you and live in you. So to receive the the living water, we have to know our need for it. We have to understand also the, the, the truth and the uniqueness of Christianity, but we also have to understand the truth about Jesus. Verses 25 and, and 26. She, uh, she hears his arguments about worship. And um, she, she's essentially going to say, let's, let, let's let bygones be bygones. You say this, I say that. We'll just agree to disagree, okay? And they don't even know each other's names at this point from what we know. So she's like, all right, living water guy. I, I, don't, I don't fully see it your way, but you made some good points. But one day I do know that the Messiah is coming. And he'll clear all of this up for us. He'll set us all straight. And, uh, and, and, and Samaritan religion, they, they thought when, when the Messiah came, when the Christ came, that he was going to restore the right religion, their religion. And, uh, and Jesus, you know, he's like, I hate to burst your bubble. Uh, and he looks at her and says, I, I who am speaking to you am he. So she's like, the, the Messiah is going to come and set us straight. And, and then he says, I who am speaking to you am he. She's already said he's a prophet. She, she knows that God has anointed him. So her mouth's got to be just open right now, right? I mean, aghast at this. And, and literally in the, in the Greek, John, John says, I am who is speaking to you. I am who is speaking to you. Now, we, we, we hear that and maybe don't hear what she would have heard. But, but it's echoes of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where there's this bush that is burning and is yet it's not consumed because the glory of God is upon it. And it's speaking to Moses. And, and it's told Moses that you're going to go back to Pharaoh and you're going to free my people. And Moses says, so who am I supposed to say sent me? And the voice out of the bush says, I am. I am. It says, you say, Yahweh sent you. He is the eternal I am. So Jesus comes to her and responds to her. The Messiah is going to come and Jesus says, I am. I mean, her mouth's just got to be open. She's beginning to understand that the person she's talking to is not just a prophet, but he is the living God incarnate. He's the living God in human flesh. And, and she's beginning to realize, okay, now, now I'm standing on holy ground, right? I mean, that, that, if we're continuing these echoes with the burning bush, it's got to be a little bit of frightening. And, and she's beginning to realize her need her, her need is beginning to come before her eyes. 
And if you know your need, you begin to look for solutions wherever you can find them. And Jesus is saying, I'm the solution. The long-awaited one. The Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. It is me. The one you've been talking to. The one who offers you living water. It is me. He says, I can tell you about living water. I can, I can tell you about all the things you've done in your life. I can tell you about true worship because I am the living God. I have come to redeem you. I have come to reconcile you. And I have come to make you part of God's family. She's someone who doesn't have family. And he's saying, you're, you're an outcast, you're a down and out. I'm, I'm here to move you from outcast and down and out to the family of God. And he reveals himself through this passage, not just in these direct words to her, but, but his heart, right? I mean, look how he deals with her throughout all of this in John 4. I mean, this is a woman who, whose reputation is known in her community. She's had five husbands, and she's now living with and sleeping with one who's not her husband, and he's compassionate. He's merciful and gracious. He treats her with, with honor and dignity throughout all of this, despite knowing her sordid past. Despite knowing the, the, the details that she's never told anyone, that she hides from, he knows them and yet treats her like this. Look, when we come into contact with, with the real Jesus, when, when, you're, when you're in God's Word and, and God's Word you know, begins to just come alive for you, it always leads to that conviction that she's feeling. It always does. God, God's Word convicts us and, and, and points us to Jesus. And, and our sin and our shame are laid bare just as hers is here. But we also, if we know Christ, feel his tenderness, know his care, know his grace, know his mercy, know his love and his faithfulness that he's been displaying to her. Throughout this passage, this woman who is ridiculed and outcast is shown love and dignity. I don't know about you, but often when I begin to feel convicted, the last thing I want to do is run to Jesus out of fear that he's going to be harsh and angry and punitive. I'm, going to, I'm just going to get yelled at and berated. I'm like, look what he does here. He says, go and get your shame and come back. Not so I can yell at you, but so you can know my love and my care and so you can have these living waters. All right, I mean, the only one who thinks that he's going to be harsh the only one who has any ideas of anger in their, their mind in those moments is you and is me. Right? Zephaniah 3.14 says that, that he no longer looks at our sin and counts it against us. He no longer looks at your sin and counts it against you. He's offering her this living water and saying, no longer do I look at you and count your sins against you. But we're oblivious, right? So often to those things as she was, until he revealed himself to her. Are you oblivious this morning? Are you oblivious to God's grace? Are you oblivious to your need for it? Are you oblivious to the fact that you're a sinner in great need of salvation? Are you distracted by petty arguments and ideas that there might be some other way? Are you oblivious to who, really, to Jesus, who Jesus really is? Or... Do you know the truth about yourself? Do you know that there's only one way? And do you know the true Jesus? The one, the one who says that I'm the Messiah who's come to deliver you from the wrath of God. That you might be brought in from your shame and your guilt into the family. 
that you might know your Father's embrace and the warmth of His care and His love and His forgiveness. You might be brought into no freedom. Or are you oblivious to those things still? He's offering you living water. But if you're not thirsty enough, you'll never take it. Do you see your thirst? Do you see his provision? The Savior of the world. Offering it to you. Offering it to me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it that we might know the truth. That we might know the truth of who we are. We might know the truth of, of our need. We might know the truth that you are the only way, Christ. And we might see you, Jesus, for who you are. The Messiah. The Christ. The promised one. Our Savior. Who loves us. Who pursues us. Who gave himself for us. We pray all these things. In Christ's name. Amen.